regulation after regulation. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be New changed. government regulations, which were created to protect the employees. The regulations are... $1.8 trillion. There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep Is this really the best we can do? Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Welcome to the Federalist Society's Practice Group Teleform conference call as today we discuss the Federal Communications Commission with Commissioner Ajit Pai. My name is Dean Reuter. I'm Vice President and General Counsel of the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. This is a Capital Conversations version of the Federal Society's Practice Group Teleform Conference Call, where we're trying to bring you updates from key administration officials. We're very pleased to welcome you all here today. And actually, uh, Ajit Pai is known well to all of you, so I'm not going to pain you with an introduction. Let me just turn the floor over to him. We'll get opening remarks from him and then look to you for questions. With that, Chairman Pai. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dean, and thanks to the Federalist Society for hosting this teleforum. I also appreciate those who are on the call for taking time out of uh, Friday afternoon to uh, chat. The SEC has been pretty busy over the past a couple of weeks, not least, of course, because of the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the American population. And I thought I'd spend a few minutes before we turn it over for questions from Dean or from uh, listeners to sketch out briefly what the FCC is doing to help respond to this unprecedented situation. Several weeks ago, once it became clear that Americans by the millions across the country would be transitioning to a very different environment, working from home, teaching their kids at home, and doing more services from home that they typically would do outside of the home, it became apparent that we needed to step up to make sure that broadband connectivity would be there. Of course, everybody knows that broadband was important even before the pandemic. It's uh, intertwined in virtually everything we do in our daily lives. But especially with people staying at home and practicing social distancing, we recognized that it was important uh, for the broadband connectivity to be there. So uh, we immediately got on the phone uh, all the major trade associations representing internet service providers and telephone providers across the country, as well as many, many of these companies individually. And I told them, it's really important for you to take what I'm calling the Keep Americans Connected Pledge. Uh, those of you who are listening, if you want more detail, can go to FCC.gov slash Keep Americans Connected for more detail. But in a nutshell, that pledge has three basic parts. Number one, that no provider will cut off service to a consumer uh, who is unable uh, to pay his or her bills due to economic or other disruptions caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Secondly, that uh, those providers will waive any late fees or similar charges for similar reasons uh, due to the pandemic's impact. And third, that these providers would open up any Wi-Fi hotspots they might have to any Americans who might need them. And I've got to say, I've been very impressed by the response to the pledge. Many of them signed up immediately. And over the past couple of weeks, we have now tallied over 650 companies representing hundreds of millions, the vast majority of American broadband consumers uh, who have taken the pledge and who have committed to doing those three things uh, for the next 60 days. Going forward, one of the things that was also important to us was to challenge these companies to go even further than the pledge. And we urged them to think creatively uh, about how they could address the needs of their consumers, and many of them have done that. For example, some of them have made new low-income service offerings that weren't in place before. 
many of them have proactively increased either the amount of data that is available or the speeds that are available at no charge. Many of them have waived or uh, lifted data caps and the like. And several others have gone uh, even further, making sure that network installs uh, proceed to pay so that people who signed up for service are going to be able to get it. Uh, so I really commend the broadband and telephone companies that have taken the pledge and have gone beyond it to help keep folks connected. It's an incredibly important way to make sure that American consumers who have so much on their minds right now, of course, the health aspects of the pandemic and uh, economic disruptions and the like, uh, they won't have to worry as much uh, for, about broadband connectivity. Now, I want to stress that uh, this is something that I'm personally sensitive to. I, like uh, many of you probably, have been working at home for several weeks now, and it has been a challenge uh, for me to juggle doing my job here in the home office in a single room all day, along with some of the uh, other responsibilities that I have, uh, trying to teach the kids, go out and get groceries and the like. And so we recognize, all of us at the FCC uh, who are teleworking now, that our work is important, that it helps make sure that Americans are able to preserve some semblance of uh, functionality in their daily lives. Going forward, we've got a lot, uh, still a lot to do, and uh, we've been uh, issuing waivers and granting special temporary authority and taking other actions to make it easier for providers to continue providing these communication services uh, to consumers across the board. And I'd be happy to discuss those in more detail if folks would like, but at a very high level, that is what the FCC has been doing over the past couple of weeks. And with that, I would uh, leave it to Dean, uh, our August moderator, to uh, pose any questions that he or others might have. Chairman Pai, your uh, your tenure has been distinguished by your stance on net neutrality, uh, which which I very much appreciate. I wonder if you can give us an update and your views on how net neutrality is working in this era, the coronavirus era, or whatever we want to talk uh, call it, and maybe draw some comp comparisons between how it's working here in the United States and and elsewhere, with, with, where they have different regimes and thoughts about net neutrality. Great question. So over the last three years, my overarching philosophy has been that we need to create a regulatory framework that maximizes the incentives of private companies to invest in and to innovate in broadband network infrastructure. Uh, the reason is pretty simple. Broadband networks are very hard and expensive to build, and the more difficult the regulatory framework is for doing those tasks, the less likely it is we are going to have broadband networks uh, that are sufficient to withstand increased usage from consumers. And I think the proof is in the pudding. Over the last three years, thanks in part to the regulatory decisions we've made, the broadband networks are stronger than ever. And net neutrality, of course, was one of the more uh, salient of those decisions. Uh, when we made that decision in December 2017, there were a lot of projections. This is the end of the internet as we know it. You're going to have to pay $5 per tweet. Certain services are going to be unavailable, period and the like. And none of those predictions have come to pass. In fact, uh, speeds in the United States, as we speak, are up over 80% on average for fixed broadband since we made that decision. We set records for fiber deployment in the United States in 2018 and 2019. The internet is better than ever before with venture capital for startups setting a record in 2018, and I was on track to do that in 2019. And moreover, the internet is free and open. And that was before the pandemic. I just got on a call, two calls yesterday with the heads of the major trade associations representing internet service providers and some of those providers themselves. And they represented, and there are maps that you can find on their websites for NCTA, CTIA, and U.S. Telecom that detail the increased usage over the pandemic. 
usage in the United States, depending on the part of the country and the time of the day, is up 20 to 35 percent over what it was before the pandemic. Nonetheless, despite this massive increase in usage, the networks have been holding up extremely well. And why? The reason is because these companies had the regulatory certainty and the incentive they needed in order to invest in broadband infrastructure. And so they were able to pour money into the networks and essentially create a network architecture that could handle the peak of traffic or expected traffic and scale over time to be flexible to meet consumer needs. That is great. That's allowed people to do things like Zoom calls and watch YouTube and upload and download lesson plans and the like. The comparison to Europe is quite interesting, though. As you might have seen, and if you go on Google, which, of course, still exists in the United States, you can find all these articles talking about how the European Commission had to go to companies like Netflix and YouTube and ask them to proactively throttle, slow down the services that are provided to European consumers. And I would humbly submit that the part of the reason is that Europe has embraced the utility-style regulations, including net neutrality, in a very strict way. And as a result, infrastructure investment in Europe, the investment in networks, has been a fraction of what it has been in the United States. And so while we, we of course, haven't seen that here in the United States, and I would think the regulatory framework is part of the reason why. And so I continue to believe that we made the right decision None of the providers we have talked to has expressed a concern about that increased usage impacting uh, network performance so far. Uh, We'll continue to monitor the situation, of course, but I do think that the decision we made a few years ago has stood us in good stead during this pandemic. This might be a geeky question, but I'm wondering if you can talk for a little bit about C-band and L-band and what the future there looks like after, if you don't mind, giving just a, a layman's explanation of what's happening there. Sure. I don't consider them geeky questions or geeky people. These are my fellow travelers. So I think in our world, we're all cool. When it comes to C-band, we adopted an order a couple months ago, I guess it was, establishing a framework for essentially reallocating the spectrum that is currently held by some satellite operators uh, from 3.7 to 4.0 gigahertz and uh, repurposing it for terrestrial 5G use. And we set up, it's a very complicated uh, uh, framework uh, and set of deadlines, but essentially we are going to be taking the steps necessary to hold an auction of the C-band, of 280 megahertz of the C-band, starting on December 8th of this year. And notwithstanding the pandemic, we anticipate uh, at this time that uh, that auction is going to go uh, as scheduled. It is a very complicated auction, or a complicated uh, spectrum band uh, to deal with, probably the most complicated I've ever dealt with in my time at the FCC. And the reason is that we decided uh, that for the FCC to be able to hold this public auction, we had to figure out a way to align the satellite operator incumbents' interests with our own. And so what we did was to use the framework uh, that the FCC has embraced for almost 30 years now called the Emerging Technologies Framework, along with the plenary authority to modify uh, licenses under Section 316 of the Communications Act and offer the satellite companies not just the relocation costs, uh, which were estimated to be about 3 to $5 billion, but in addition to that, offer them accelerated relocation payments. In other words, try to incentivize them to free up that spectrum quicker, that lower 280, 300 megahertz of spectrum quicker, so that we could hold that auction. And essentially, that $9.7 billion uh, 
would then align the satellite operator's interests with those of the wireless carriers that want quicker access to that spectrum. And so we're confident that uh, the satellite operators will come to the table. We've already gotten public expressions from companies like Telesat and SES that they are interested in the framework that they support the FCC's order. And uh, the election date for satellite companies to opt into this will be May 29th, and we're hopeful that we'll get a very favorable response then. Um, in the meantime, uh, there are other spectrum issues on tap. You mentioned the L-band as well. And that's one where it's been pending for a long time. Uh, we continue to work with some of our federal partners, in particular the Department of Commerce, Department of Defense, and others on it. And so here, too, as with uh, some of our other decisions we've been making, we want to try to figure out uh, not what the, the political angles are, but more uh, what are the technical uh, details of this plan. That's the situation we're in now, uh, just trying to work through some of those issues. And I don't have an update on that front yet, but what we continue to get feedback from public sector and private sector stakeholders. Let's check in with the first member of our audience, see what's on their mind. Go ahead, caller. All right, this is Cleta Mitchell, uh, Mr. Chairman and Dean. Nice to talk to you. I wanted to, first of all, congratulate you, uh, Mr. Chairman, on that wonderful uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Well, it helped us understand all the things that you've been doing and, and how it has manifested itself now. And uh, the second thing I wanted to ask or just mention is um, I love the Keep Americans Connected uh, initiative and that list of telecom companies and associations who are participating. It's just fabulous. And I, I was actually going to send you um, uh, just some bullet points of a small little Texas telephone cooperative and what they've been doing just in their area. I think that we need to highlight some of these specific stories about what they're doing because it's very heartwarming and gratifying to see. And I think if there's a way that we can thank these companies, I and all, I think that they they're doing wonderful things, and it's it's a good positive group of stories. And I appreciate your leadership on uh, reaching out to all of them and keeping us all connected. This is our lifeline. So thanks for all you're doing. Thank you so much, Cleta. I really appreciate your uh, raising that point. Obviously, most Americans know the names of a few of these broadband providers, you know, the Comcast, AT&T's of the world and the like, but there are so many of the companies that have taken the pledge, as I mentioned now, over 650 of them, and I think 99% of Americans have probably never heard of most of them. Uh, but to me, those are the foot soldiers for the broadband revolution in parts of the country that traditionally have been on the wrong side of the digital divide. And I've had a chance before the pandemic to visit a lot of them. I still remember a visit I did last summer uh, to Mandan, North Dakota, where BEK Communications, a very small company that I'm sure many listeners haven't heard of, that very day was connecting Cullen Quill with Gigabit Fiber. And he had never had an internet connection to his house, but today he was getting Gigabit Fiber and I asked him, hey, what are you going to do with all this bandwidth? And he thought about it for a second because he never had that kind of problem to worry about before. Uh, but then he said, you know what, now my wife and I don't have to drive 20 minutes to Bismarck, uh, sorry, to Fargo, uh, so our kids can use the neighborhood Wi-Fi at the McDonald's to upload their homework. And that's just one example of how a small company can really make a big difference in the life of one family, of one community. And those stories are multiplying now in this wake of the pandemic. And so we really are trying to highlight as much of that as we can. If you have the misfortune of following me on Twitter, at FCC. I've been trying to find examples of that to show that, look, broadband providers, they're involved in the pandemic response, too. Their workers are going out in the field at risk to themselves and their families, and they're trying to make sure that Americans have the connections they need. So shoot me an email at ajit.pi.fcc.gov. Uh, we'd love to get more details on that company in Texas and any other companies out there that 
are going above and beyond. I, I really do want to stress that you know, when we say we're all in it together, uh, we're all in it together. And I think broadband providers, by and large, believe that too. Well, I think you'll really like this story. They are doing discounts to any any home connecting because a lot of people are connecting because their kids are required to do distance learning, and so they're giving discounts to new new customers who have students in their home. Just a whole list of things. It's pretty remarkable. Oh, it's just amazing. So yeah, please do send that along, and I'd love to take a look. Thank you. Check in with our next caller. This is Tim Harker in Potomac. I have a, a distinctly non-geek question. Uh, I still own a flip phone, so I can show you how, how non-geek this question will be. I'm pretty interested in the coronavirus China, uh, Red China link, and I wonder if you could discuss uh, how the corona epidemic and, and China's uh, covering it up has uh, impacted the F- FCC's campaign involving uh, 5G on the one hand and also how the uh, use of Twitter by China to uh, uh, blame the United States for the coronavirus has uh, impacted the FCC. Well, happy to. And before I do that, though, I have to commend you on your use of the flip phone. I've been, uh, over the past couple of weeks, re-watching Breaking Bad, and every time Walter White pulls out that flip phone, it, it's a good reminder of, hey, not that long ago, this was the, uh, the technology du jour. And I, I actually missed my flip phone in quite a few ways, so uh, kudos to you. I've been pretty outspoken about uh, some of my criticisms of the Chinese Communist Party, when, especially when it comes to 5G. And uh, there's no question that the, the party, as well as some of the companies that are subject to Chinese jurisdiction, have made a very concerted effort to not just dominate the Chinese marketplace, but extend that domination to other markets. And uh, before the pandemic uh, fully took hold, uh, part of my responsibility here was to make sure that we secured our own supply chain. And the FCC has done that with unanimous votes, uh, barring federal funds from going to companies like Huawei and ZTE. But as I was also on the road quite a bit. In fact, just over the last year, everywhere from, let's see, Bahrain uh, to India to Malaysia to Singapore to Japan, uh, spoken with the Brazilians and uh, you know, the Germans and others, to try to persuade them to come around to our view that security of 5G networks is important. It can't be an afterthought. And that to the extent that Chinese... Uh, uh, law requires any company subject to its jurisdiction to comply with requests from uh, intelligence services that Chinese equipment just couldn't be trusted. It was just too much of a risk. And I think some of the concerns I've had and expressed publicly have been magnified over the ca- past couple of months. And uh, this is is not strictly within the FCC's bailiwick, obviously, uh, but as you can see from my Twitter feed, <laughs> um, I, if you look up my name, my Twitter handle, and you don't say I've had a long-running thread about how the Chinese Communist Party has looked to manipulate uh, perception, public perception um, of the situation, not just in China, but around the world. And it's a serious public health issue. And I don't claim to have expertise on all the nuances of the coronavirus's development and spread. But what I do know is that openness and transparency across borders is exceptionally important in helping all of us uh, understand better what the threat of the uh, virus is. And the Chinese Communist Party, I don't think by any reasonable measure, has been open and transparent as it should be. So rest assured, I share the, some of the concerns that you've addressed, and uh, we're doing our part at the FCC, at least, to stay focused on it. If you'll bear a, a slight interjection here, Chairman Pai, uh, relatedly, I, I'm curious about your thoughts about how much the national security conversation has been absorbed, not just around the the world, but within our country here. I find it curious when independent agencies uh, are 
are sometimes ending up on the other side of the V uh, in, in, in enforcement actions. And independent agencies are a bit of a pet peeve with some federal society members. Is there any mechanism, formal or informal, uh, for independent agencies to vet not just their regulations, but their enforcement actions when it comes to technology companies? It seems to me that if you're enforcing against Boeing or Lockheed Martin or something like that, the national security implications are pretty clear. But it's only recently, it seems to me, that when you're enforcing against big technology companies, there might be national security implications. Is there any process for, for making sure the executive branch is speaking with one voice in those circumstances? A very good question. Uh, there is generally very close cooperation, at least between the FCC and the relevant uh, agencies within the administration on some of these issues. Just to give you one example, last year, the FCC under my leadership denied the application of uh, China Mobile to enter the United States market. Uh, traditionally, under Section 214 of the Communications Act, any company looking to enter the U.S. market has to apply to the FCC for essentially authorization. And before, you know, typically what the FCC does is either grant or deny based on its own factual record, but we recognize that there are national security uh, dimensions to this question, and so we consulted with all of the national security and intelligence community agencies, and they provided us, uh, for the first time, a recommendation that we deny the application. And so we relied on that judgment in going forward. Uh, similarly, whenever we develop some of our supply chain rulemakings, I know you were asking more about the enforcement side, but on the rulemaking side too, we always collaborate closely on some of the supply chain issues. So for example, in initially designating Huawei and ZTE as problematic companies, we relied on the judgment of some of our sister agencies. Uh, so from our perspective at least, although we are an independent agency, when it comes to national security, I think it's exceptionally important, as you hinted at, for the administration to speak with one voice and not to provide dissimilar regulations or uh, dissimilar pronouncements about how it's thinking about an issue. And so we try to minimize, uh, to the extent we can anyway, uh, some of that risk through uh, interagency cooperation. I will note, by the way, that uh, for those of you out there who are worried about the status of independent agencies, uh, a nice anecdote. One of the first people I heard from after I got confirmed as a commissioner in May of 2012 was a good friend of mine here in Washington who is a good diehard member of the Federalist Society, and he called me to congratulate me for, and I quote, being my favorite member of an unconstitutional independent agency. And that's probably one of the best compliments I've gotten over my eight or so years on the commission. Looks like we've got three callers in the queue now with questions. Go ahead, caller. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My name is Roger Hanshaw from Charleston, West Virginia. If this recent work-from-home exercise that the country is now engaged in has taught us anything, it's that we need better connectivity and better, better Internet access globally, but certainly here as we try to continue doing business in the United States. Can you can you tell me from a non-technical perspective if your agency has been a part of the conversations with the administration and Congress about the ongoing efforts to craft relief legislation and if expansion or bolstering of, of connectivity and expansion of reliable services is a part of that conversation? Happy to. Uh, good, very good question. We've been very involved. In fact, uh, several weeks ago, uh, I went to Congress, my team went to Congress and gave them certain asks that we thought should be included in what ended up becoming the CARES Act. And one of the asks that was accommodated by both houses of Congress was a $200 million proposal I had for uh, funding of telehealth solutions. Uh, one, of the things that the, one thing that the pandemic has made clear is that there's an increased burden on the bricks and mortar healthcare facilities. And so to the extent that some of these healthcare providers could do telehealth, 
some of the patients who did not have COVID-19 related issues could be treated remotely. So they didn't have to come into a hospital and risk exposure. Uh, healthcare practitioners wouldn't have to risk exposure from new people coming in, et cetera. And last Friday, a week ago, the president signed the CARES Act, uh, giving the FCC authorization to do telehealth programs and $200 million. On Monday, I outlined my plan to execute quickly on that authority. On Tuesday, that plan was adopted by the FCC, by all five commissioners. And then uh, yesterday, we released that plan, which is publicly available. And now I'm going to be doing outreach to healthcare providers around the country to let them know that that authorization is there. Uh, we're continuing to work with Congress on some other issues. One of the big challenges, as I've seen firsthand, is uh, educating kids at home, doing remote learning. One of the issues is that Section 254H2 of the Act, of the Communications Act, explicitly limits the FCC's ability to provide subsidies for schools and libraries to, quote, services delivered to, quote, classrooms. Obviously, uh, something like a Wi-Fi hotspot is not a service and home is not a classroom. So one of the things I pitched uh, Congress on is setting up a, an authorization similar to what we did for telehealth just last week for a remote learning initiative. Enable us to set up a program quickly that would get some of this connectivity to students wherever they happen to be, typically at home, of course. Uh, so that's the kind of thing we're continuing to do. In the meantime, though, the FCC has to chew, walk and chew gum at the same time. So we're walking in terms of pandemic response, but we're also chewing gum in terms of the bread and butter issues that we typically handle. And to me, there's no bigger one than getting broadband out there to all parts of the country. The most significant issue that I'll highlight, because it would affect you uh, in West Virginia and many people across the country, is the FCC's Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. Uh, this is a $20 billion fund that we just voted on a few months ago, and we're going to be holding that auction uh, sometime later this summer. But it would essentially direct $20 billion for connectivity over the next decade at a very high speed and high quality. Uh, and one of the things that we've been fighting about, uh, including with some elected officials from West Virginia, is they say that, no, we should delay that auction. We should wait until every single map of broadband availability in the country is perfect. And to me, if there's a part of the country we already know is unserved, we want to fund broadband providers to build infrastructure in those areas now. We don't want to wait. And I think the pandemic has only underscored the importance of not waiting around. Uh, same thing, just earlier this week, we announced a $9 billion 5G fund. This is all using existing uh, funding, by the way, so we're not raising taxes, so to speak, in order to fund it. Uh, but this 5G fund is going to provide 5G services to parts of the country that otherwise would be left behind uh, since providers tend to focus on the bigger uh, cities and the like that are uh, that have more return on the investment. So when it, whether it's fixed broadband at home or 5G, we want to make sure that every part of the country has connectivity in order to do telehealth, remote learning, uh, telework, whatever it is you want to do. That connectivity is critical, and I think the pandemic shows why we need to move forward quickly. Very good. Two questions pending now in our audience. Let's go to another caller. Hi, uh, Commissioner. This is Cole Laporte calling. I, I had a couple questions. One was, how does the breakdown work between the FCC and the FTC on blocking uh, unwanted phone calls uh, under the new legislation? And that's the first one, because it, it doesn't seem to be advertised very well. And I know that the carriers can, can charge for it. Uh, and secondly, just a, a quick update on what you think the pending litigation is right now. Uh, that the FCC is involved in. Uh, so on the first one, uh, your question is more timely than you know. I don't know if you saw it, but just in the last half hour, 
uh, we announced uh, an breaking news uh, that there's an unprecedented action that we've taken in collaboration with the FTC to go after some of these scam robocalls. In particular, relying in part on some of the telephone companies that created something called the Traceback Group. The Traceback Group helps track down where some of these suspect robocalls are coming from. They're typically coming from abroad. And what gateway provider, so to speak, what small company in the United States is taking those calls from abroad and then throwing them onto the consumer, onto the phone networks where they end up bombarding consumers. So thanks in part to this public-private cooperation between the FCC, the FTC, and the Traceback Group, we just announced within the last hour that we are demanding that three gateway providers in the United States that have been watching a lot of these coronavirus-related um, robocalls must stop doing that within the next 48 hours or risk being cut off themselves from the U.S. phone network. And that's one of the things we have ample authority to do under the Communications Act. And moreover, from a policy perspective, I mean, I don't know about you, but robocalls drive me absolutely crazy. I get them every day. And the last thing we want, especially in the midst of a pandemic, is for fraudsters to start promoting things like fake testing kits or bogus cures that end up wasting time at best or uh, scamming people out of their hard-earned money at worst. And so that kind of FCC-FTC collaboration is now the new norm when it comes to robocall enforcement. Uh, legally speaking, uh, the FTC has a jurisdiction over a variety of consumer protection issues. They administer uh, the do not call list, for example, uh, they take they can take enforcement action against particular companies. Uh, we have more uh, authority on the rulemaking side, and we've done that by authorizing companies to phone companies to block robocalls by default. Uh, we just mandated on this past Monday that they uh, implement a new caller ID authentication technology called Shake and Stir. Essentially, this would create a digital fingerprint for every single phone call. And if a phone call didn't have that fingerprint, a phone company wouldn't uh, pass the call along to the consumer. And so that's the kind of thing we've been trying to do uh, in more, a more collaborative effort. Uh, with the respect to the litigation, there's a lot of litigation out there. I guess the most significant one uh, that's pending right now would be the remand of the D.C. Circuit's remand of certain net neutrality issues. Overall, they upheld the broad decisions that we made in terms of reclassification of the Internet the access services as an information service. But they remanded on three discrete issues, and we saw comment on that. Um, and so that uh, deadline is going to be – we just extended the deadline uh, for replies a little bit, but that's going to be something we have to deal with. And in the meantime, I would anticipate, although we haven't seen it yet, litigation over the C-band that uh, Dean and I just discussed. Uh, there has been a noise from some of the small satellite operators uh, that don't provide service in the United States but nonetheless feel that they should be afforded some millions of dollars from the FCC as part of this effort. And they've announced that they will litigate. They haven't filed yet, but if they did file, we would want to make sure we batted that back because any injunction could delay the auction, and we certainly don't want that to happen. So I guess those are the two things I would flag for consideration. Two questions pending, so let's head in a new direction with a new caller. Hi. With the pandemic, it seems like a lot of uh, restrictions have been eased as far as data caps and access has been expanded for the internet and it seems as though the internet has done uh, just fine i was just wondering if you foresee any long-standing changes in how the consumer market acts like are these data caps going to come back after the pandemic yeah that's a really good question uh we certainly hope uh that to the maximum extent possible uh the increased usage uh that has been accommodated by the providers uh, who have provided these dispensations 
uh, will continue because we think that there are, I do think that there are going to be changes in consumer behavior that are permanent and not just a result of the pandemic. And so um, obviously that's up to the particular provider to figure out how their network architecture is performing, uh, what their consumers are demanding and the like. But I do hope that a lot of the uh, rule changes that we've made, a lot of the business offerings and business uh, management decisions they've made uh, will become the new normal. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, thus far, at least, it's been pretty successful. And in the meantime, uh, we do think that some of the changes that we've proposed uh, going forward on the rulemaking side are going to make a big difference for consumers. I mean, the biggest one that I don't think we've had the chance to discuss yet was the proposal we just announced on Wednesday. Uh, this is a plan I've announced that would make uh, over 1,200 megahertz in the 6 gigahertz band available for Wi-Fi. And I don't know if you're at home with multiple devices being used by multiple people, but uh, the, uh, the congestion of Wi-Fi has become a serious issue. And so I proposed a massive expansion, a five-fold expansion in the amount of airwaves available for Wi-Fi. This has been described by one Wi-Fi innovator as the biggest event in Wi-Fi, if not wireless, in a generation. Uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial, which Cleta kindly mentioned this morning, endorse this plan, as have many others. And this would be a huge benefit to consumers, uh, no matter where they live, in the time to come. And I'm hopeful that the FCC will approve of it uh, at our April 23rd meeting. Let's check in with another caller. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for taking the questions. I didn't catch the first part of your comments on the L-Ban, but it would just seem that in the midst of this crisis, getting more spectrum available is clearly at a premium. I was just wondering, are you currently planning to move forward on that? And what are the key milestones from here? So no update on that front. I know there's been a great deal of interest in it, but uh, yeah, I can't really say anything other than we're continuing to work with our federal partners. And uh, you know, prior to the pandemic uh, disrupting our normal work patterns, I was continuing to uh, take meetings with stakeholders uh, on the issue. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I can't give you any uh, hint as to you know, what we might do and when we might do it. And I know that's unsatisfactory. Uh, given the pendency of this issue over uh, several years, but that's the uh, unfortunate uh, best I can do. Go right ahead, caller. Thank you for taking the call. Uh, I'm Adrian Keeble. I'm located in uh, Virginia. And, um, you know, if you look at what happened with 3G and 4G to the economy, clearly the 5G will be, um, you know, should be um, a large contributor to um, not only jobs, but also GDP and uh, just wealth in the stock market. You know, clearly a lot of that's going to be on the back of private capital, but um, in times like these, the government can help. And I was wondering what you think Congress uh, or the administration might be able to do to help you jumpstart 5G or, or catalyze it happen more quickly. And do you think that they are um, are teed up to do that currently? Boy, that's a good question. I don't know how much time we have, but I've got a lot of ideas. Uh, one would <laughs> one would be uh, for Congress to make it easier for us to repurpose airways for commercial use. Right now, because of the division of authority we have, the FCC has jurisdiction, as you know, over spectrum for the commercial marketplace, while the NTIA a subset of the Commerce Department has jurisdiction over federal held spectrum. And uh, Getting those two entities uh, to collaborate and to get more spectrum available for 5G has not always been easy, to say the least, over the last year. And we're quickly reaching the point where there is no more greenfield spectrum. 
every spectrum band has some sort of incumbent. And if it's a federal agency that's an incumbent, it's becoming increasingly difficult to persuade that incumbent that either relinquishing the spectrum or sharing it is the right way to go, uh, whereas other countries don't necessarily have these obstacles. And so anything Congress or the administration can do to ease that transition uh, from federal to commercial spectrum would be very helpful. Uh, a second thing that would be great uh, would be for uh, all of the agencies to support our efforts in promoting more virtualized uh, networks. 5G networks are going to be very different from 4G and predecessor technologies in that uh, it's going to be more software-driven as opposed to hardware-driven. And one of the things that one of the reasons why Huawei has had such success, I think, in the 5G market is it's a very consolidated marketplace and they get subsidies from the Chinese government. And so if you're an Ericsson and Nokia, which are the two main uh, alternatives to Huawei, uh, it's very difficult for them to compete at scale around the world. But if you virtualize a lot of this network architecture, then you all of a sudden put the keys to security and cost effectiveness into the hands of the network operators who don't have to rely on a Huawei as much. And so one of the great regrets I have about the quick transition we had to telework was that the FCC had planned a forum on March 26th focusing on this very topic, virtualized radio access network architecture. And a lot of the companies doing this interesting work were here in the, are based here in the United States, companies like Altiostar and Mavenir and Parallel Wireless and others, homegrown American companies that could provide a cost-effective alternative and provide more secure networks. We wanted to highlight those efforts. And uh, as you might have seen, on April 1st, the White House had slated a 5G summit uh, to follow up on our uh, virtualized radio access network forum, and that too had to be uh, postponed. Uh, so supporting our efforts there would be really helpful, I think, in showing that not just on the spectrum side, but also on the infrastructure side, we're acting with one voice. Uh, the other piece I'll mention briefly is uh, the International Finance Development Corporation. Uh, the IFDC has uh, funding to support investments abroad. Uh, and we, one of the things I've discussed with Adam Bowler, the CEO of the IFDC, is for us to collaborate so that if there's a particular uh, 5G infrastructure supplier that is not a Chinese uh, supplier, uh, you, to the extent they're bidding on a contract, for example, in uh, Bahrain or Brazil or wherever it is, uh, the IFDC could step in with funding to say, okay, why don't you consider, uh, it, we'll add to the capital uh, of this company so that they are better able to build a network and, and the like. And that's the kind of thing that could, could be really helpful in persuading some of these countries to use more trusted alternatives. So uh, those are three of the things that pop up in my mind, but there are many, many others. Um, oh, actually, sorry, the fi final one I should mention is that we've been, re we've been seeing a lot of uh, uh, state and local regulation of wireless infrastructure deployments. And we're quickly reaching the point where if you want to build a 5G network at scale, you can't guess, you don't have the time or the capital to guess what is the FCC going to say about it? What is the state public utility commission going to say? What is the city, the municipal authority going to say? And so I would like for there to be more consistent regulation across the board. It shouldn't matter where you're deploying infrastructure. The rules should be as similar as possible. And while preemption, I know, is not something that, is, that some of the state and local governments like to hear, nonetheless, the Internet, I think, is pretty well agreed upon as an interstate service inherently. And so it follows from that that we can't have these multiple layers of regulatory review you know, much longer. So that's another area where I would love to see congressional action. We've got just one question pending. Uh, you raised an issue which just came to my mind involving national security. Um, the current situation with the crisis, uh, uh, the virus crisis, has pointed up a, a lack of ad adequate domestic supply of a whole bunch of things. Uh, using the analogy, uh, 
I recall about 15 years ago there was a move afoot after 9-11 to set aside band space for first first responders, and, and then I sort of lost track of that. A friend of mine who founded Nextel was was leading that charge, and, and I haven't seen him in years, and I wonder what's happened to that, and is that something that's currently being looked at in light of uh, the corona crisis? Yeah, that's a great question, sir. Uh, so uh, actually, the uh, FirstNet is the name of that entity, uh, the First Responder Network Authority. Uh, that was created under legislation uh, that was passed back in 2012. Uh, the FCC's role in that has now been discharged. Uh, we were supposed to uh, submit technical recommendations to the Department of Commerce. Uh, we had to grant a license to the FirstNet entity, which we did back in 2013, I believe. And then FirstNet uh, itself had to award a contract to a private carrier to help build that network. And they did that back in 2014 or 2015, I believe. Uh, they gave that contract to AT&T. And so now AT&T and FirstNet are working together to build that network using 700 megahertz spectrum across the country. And uh, it's been a while since I got an update on how that build-out is going. I, as far as I know, anyway, it's still proceeding apace. That's a really good point, and that, that's an issue where uh, we have been involved on, in a few ways. For example, along the border with Mexico, uh, some of the 700 megahertz spectrum is used on the Mexican side for television broadcasting still, and so there can be interference across the border. Uh, and we occasionally we have issues that we have to deal with uh, you know, interfering with uh, 700 megahertz public safety communications and the like. But uh, generally speaking, anyway, uh, the FCC doesn't have as much of a role in FirstNet now in 2020. Chairman Pike, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times you've talked about different interactions with other agencies and with Congress. I wonder if you want to take a moment to describe just more broadly your relationship or the FCC's relationship with Congress and with the administration. Good question. Now, it's a very close uh, collaborative relationship with each of those entities. Uh, when it comes to the administration, especially on some of these spectrum issues, uh, we've had to work very closely with the White House and other departments and uh, and the like uh, to make sure that we are able to achieve our mission of advancing American leadership in 5G. And uh, I'm proud to say that thus far, at least, the White House has uh, backed us up 100%. The president himself has said that it's a major uh, priority for him, for America to lead the world in the development and deployment of 5G technologies. And we've had a good working relationship with many other agencies as well. Uh, there are, have been some difficulties as, uh, to be sure, but overall, I think uh, we are pretty much aligned on that priority. Uh, when it comes to working with Congress, too, we try to keep them in the loop on everything we're doing. And no matter what the headlines uh, might say or what you see uh, in some hostile tweets, uh, behind the scenes, at least, uh, for the most part, the relationships have been very cooperative. Uh, we try to let them know, for example, when it comes to the rural broadband initiative that I discussed, uh, we read them in as best we can to make sure they understand this is what it means for your constituents. And so for the gentleman who uh, was calling from West Virginia, for instance, uh, we sat down with the West Virginia delegation and said, okay, based on our projections, our mathematical models and the like, we project that 239,000 people in West Virginia will be eligible to get high-speed broadband as a result of our Rural Digital Opportunity Fund just through phase one alone, because those people are considered to be unserved by any broadband whatsoever. And that's something that helps them understand, uh, you know, pu putting away the acronyms and the CFR citations and the like, that's something concrete they can understand and give them buy-in to what the FCC is proposing to do. And so I think while some of my, my predecessors might have had a more I don't know, uh, uh, a view of the agency is more distinct from Congress. Uh, Congress is a necessary 
uh, evil that we have to deal with, we've tried to keep the doors of communication open uh, just to make sure that uh, the, the uh, senators and representatives understand what we're doing and support what we're doing. Um, but it hasn't always been easy, to be clear, especially on issues like net neutrality. It's just uh, the political catnip can be too appealing to some, and so uh, folks will want to take their pot shots. But you know, I try to be a, an optimistic person and uh, look at it for uh, those who are willing to work with me in good faith. And uh, by and large, they've done that. Very good. So let's turn back to our callers. Hey, Chairman Pike, a quick question. You mentioned the potential lawsuits on the CBAN's auction from, from the SSAs, and I'm just wondering how you think about Intelsat. Um, you know, Intelsat uh, is obviously a big player. They're on the brink of bankruptcy now. Um, they were before, but now cl clearly seem to be. How do you view the risk uh, of Intelsat either holding out and not cooperating and therefore the good actors, you know, also getting nothing and everything falling apart or, you know, proactively suing it? How, how do you think about Intelsat uh, related to this process? Well, what I will say is that I do believe we have extended to every one of the companies uh, whose work is essential for the transition of C-band spectrum to the terrestrial 5G side of things, uh, a very fair offer when it comes to accelerated relocation payments in addition to relocation payments. And I do hope that as the election date draws near, all of those companies will you take a careful look at the FCC's order, understand some of the uh, trade-offs uh, we had to make, and uh, see that the offer we've got on the table is a very fair one. And Ultimately, it's much better for everybody, uh, but uh, yeah, every company is going to have to make that decision for itself uh, over the next, uh, what is it, two months and change. So uh, we'll see how things materialize. But uh, uh, I am very confident that the order we've got is not just solid uh, in terms of its legal foundation, but also as a policy matter in aligning the interests of everybody around what I think should be our shared goal of advancing leadership in 5G. But would a bankruptcy of Intelsat change that view in the in the interim? And they have debt trading at ten cents on the dollar. Yeah, I've had to disclose some of our internal uh, discussions on that question, so I can't really opine on how, if at all, uh, that might uh, affect our thinking or uh, how uh, things might proceed. Let's check in with another caller. We've got two questions pending. Go ahead, caller. Uh, actually, the prior caller uh, asked virtually the same question I was going to ask. So, thank you for the floor and. Um, Thank you for the time, uh, Chairman Pai. What kind of coffee do you drink? Because your energy level is yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> it's impressive. Well, well thank you. It's uh, <laughs> One of the upsides of being home is that I've got an endless uh, amount of coffee ready to be brewed just in the next room. And so, uh, you know, right now, although we are typically a Pete's household, we've uh, transitioned. I used to live in New Orleans, and so we've got a whole stack of Café du Monde uh, cafe, uh, coffee with chicory. And uh, that gets me through the day. So I'm on cup number three at the moment and uh, still going <laughs> strong. But you know, check back with me around 9 p.m. and uh, I'll probably crash uh, in a heap. <laughs> so let's go to a new caller and hope maybe we can get an at-home uh, delivery of beignet. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Go ahead, caller. Yes, hello, Chairman Pai. Uh, uh, thank you for telling me about the, the phone. I'm uh, not a lawyer. I'm just a 17-year-old who really likes the law. And I'm just curious, uh, has the FCC seen any kind of increase uh, in litigation uh, against it for, you know, regulatory actions as a result of the coronavirus? And, uh, and more generally, uh, what kind of coronavirus-related telecommunications disputes has it been called in to resolve since the, uh, since the outbreak? Good question. So as to the first, uh, not really. We've seen uh, actually no increase uh, in any litigation uh, related to the pandemic. Um, indeed, to the extent that... Um, 
We've gotten questions from uh, companies that are regulatees or licensees. Uh, they've asked for dispensations uh, that have helped them, uh, for example, getting more emergency spectrum release so they can offer more wireless service in New York City and the like. So they've been generally pretty happy about what we've done. Yeah, so the biggest one would be robocalls. Uh, the, we saw an uptick in coronavirus-related robocalls, and that's one of the things uh, that I was mentioning earlier, our collaboration with the FTC has enabled us to track down particular gateway providers uh, that were enabling some of these foreign-launched uh, robocalls from getting into our domestic phone networks. And we were able to take relatively quick action uh, to target that. Uh, so that, that's probably the biggest one. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions about telehealth and uh, telemedicine. And uh, that telehealth program I described earlier, the COVID-19 telehealth program, uh, was meant to address that a concern that a lot of people had. So uh, generally speaking, we've been pretty nimble uh, whenever we get a request from uh, consumer groups or companies and the like uh, responding to that. But thanks for the question and hope you're staying safe out there. Well, Chairman, this is Dean. We've got two questions pending. Uh, you were in range, I think, of maybe breaking the record for a number of questions on a teleform call. So, Hi, sir. I had one more follow-up question for you. There had been some debate from people we had talked to in Washington about the ability of the FCC to operate uh, just functionally to be able to get things done. It sounds like you're operating I don't know how you could characterize it, but if you could tell us how you're operating, how quickly you're able to get things done, and then in specifically related to some of these really important 5G spectrum things, C-band and L-band, can you characterize your ability to, in a world where everyone is you know, locked at home, be able to execute on you know, pushing those things forward? Yeah, good questions both. Uh, as to the first, uh, we were one of the first, if not the first, agency to strongly encourage uh, employees to shift to telework. And uh, by and large, they did that. And uh, right now, we have shifted to even further to mandatory telework for all but essential employees that have to go in. And we have a, uh, an operation center that handles certain security issues, for instance. So we've been very, very productive over the last couple of weeks. In fact, this week alone, in addition to uh, some major issues that we voted on at our March 31st meeting, we also implemented the telehealth program based on legislation Congress passed and the president signed just last week. And we've gotten that FCC-FTC collaboration effort I described off, uh, out the door. So we've been really, really productive. Uh, that's one of the things I was worried about is if everyone shifts back home and has some of the same issues I do in terms of childcare and uh, getting groceries, medicines, and the like, how is it going to work? And it's actually worked quite well. I'm proud to say, and that's a testament to our agency's incredible employees. Uh, one of the things that I haven't talked about publicly is uh, that I try to do as much outreach as I can to employees or groups of employees. And so just yesterday, for instance, I had a, a virtual town hall with the fantastic employees in our wireline competition bureau who've done incredible work just over the last week on telehealth, robocalls, and you name it, uh, just to thank them for the work they've been doing and to hear what was on their mind. Uh, as a result of some of the issues that we had been hearing about, for instance, we proactively granted extra administrative leave uh, to uh, people who might need it to take care of children or to take care of elderly relatives and the like. And uh, being able to address that employee concern early on has bought us, I think, a lot of goodwill that our employees know that their health and safety is my first and foremost concern. And uh, so that when they do have free time, to allocate to work, they're working exceptionally hard. So I'm, re I'm really, really grateful to them for that. Uh, it really is their finest hour as public servants. As to the second, we've been exceptionally busy uh, on the, getting some of these things done. I mean, resolving the 5G fund and getting the 6 gigahertz items uh, prepared for public release was not easy, uh, and it required collaboration across bureaus and offices. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, 
we managed to get that done. And I anticipate with C-band, L-band, all the other spectrum issues, that's going to continue to be the case. Uh, we've got a very uh, good working relationship amongst the very, various bureaus and offices and the chairman's office. And um, you know, we're, we've been able to shift to conference calls and Zoom and whatnot uh, like anybody else. And so I would not anticipate any slowdown whatsoever. Um, if folks know anything about me, it's that I'm pretty impatient to get things done and get results. And that doesn't change, uh, even though we're now more in a virtual world as opposed to the physical one. We've got more than one question pending now, but maybe time for one more question. So let me check in with this caller. Go ahead, caller. I'm not an FCC lawyer. I practice environmental law for 40 years, but I want to compliment you on the not just the uh, caffeine-induced level of energy you have, but <laughs> but, but, but the work you're doing. I've kept a, a somewhat distant eye on it for some time. I was suspicious when when I saw you were an Obama appointee originally, but now I'm a I'm a fan, and, and uh, I really feel you're doing a splendid job, and I think you should be complimented. Secondly, I wanted to ask you, and maybe in terms of your, your level of energy, and your, your, you seem to be a fountain of ideas, at the University of Chicago Law School, did you, did you study under David Curry, with whom I used to work in environmental law years ago? This is incredible. So, wow, this is a very random. But just a couple of days ago, I, I tweeted about this. Professor Curry was my favorite professor in law school. I had him for civil procedure. Uh, my first year, I had him for federal jurisdiction later on. And I also, the, the best experience was I did an independent study paper, what uh, University of Chicago law students call a 499 with him. And this all came about because I one day was sitting around my apartment looking at a $1 bill, and I saw that note, uh, that line that it has on there, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And I just got to thinking, as a U Chicago law geek sometimes does, where on earth did this come from, and was there any debate about it? And I found some article in the library talking about how this was a big constitutional debate in the 1860s during the Civil War. And as it happens, at the time I was on Law Review editing an article that Professor Curry had written about uh, the Constitution in Congress. And so I went to him and I said, hey, do you know anything about this? Can I learn anything? And he said, this would be a great topic for a 499 paper. And so over the six months after that, uh, under his supervision, we worked together on this paper and I ultimately published it in the Oregon Law Review. And uh, he, uh, he was a hero of mine. I mean, just one of the greatest teachers. I was scared to death of him in the classroom because he was a very uh, energetic uh, user of the Socratic method. But looking back on it now, my God, the things I remember uh, from law school are typically the professors like him. And uh, one of the things I've got, and I'm looking at it right now in my library, uh, my home office, is the, the book he wrote on the Constitution and Congress, the Federalist Years. And he inscribed in it uh, something that I cherish to this day, which is uh, to Ajit in joint remembrance of our labors in these vineyards. And uh, just to have the chance to work with a brilliant mind like that who inspired intellectual curiosity, curiosity in me at an early age it's something that I'm really, really grateful uh, to the law school for and to him for. So even though he's passed, he will always occupy a very uh, fond uh, place in my heart. I practiced law for 50 years, and he was the most brilliant man I ever knew in the practice of law. Anyway, so I can see his influence on you, and I'm happy about that. I hope your law review article made it into his, his volume on the, on the history of the Constitution in the Congress. I'll have to look for that. I've got that set, and I, I haven't... Uh, I'll look for for that article and see if I can find it. He gave you credit for it, which is uh, typical. That's very good. Oh, he did. Yeah, he it was. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. The Constitution, Congress, the Civil War, or something like Civil War years. And uh, yeah, I did make it into that first footnote. So uh, to me, at least, uh, that was just a thrill. Uh, even more than having this job or meeting Judge Judy, uh, getting recognized by David Curry. That's uh, that's a feather in the cap. 
Well, Chairman Pai, this is Dean. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's a terrific call. Uh, I think we probably did set a record for number of questions and number of answers, coincidentally. So uh, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Uh, let me give you 30 seconds for a final thought if you'd like to take it. Oh, just to reiterate what I said from the beginning, thanks so much, Dean, and to the Federal Society for giving me this opportunity. And, and thanks to the, all of you uh, who engaged. I, I'm sorry I couldn't get to every single question or every single issue, but uh, if you ever want to get in touch, uh, don't hesitate to shoot me an email, uh, send me a tweet. Uh, I really want to be as responsive as I can be and understand the full range of issues that are on the SEC's plate from your perspective. So uh, stay well, stay healthy, and stay home, and we'll see you uh, on the other side in person, hopefully, once all this is over. Terrific. Thank you so much again, Chairman Pai. And to our audience, thank you for dialing in and for your thoughtful questions and comments. We are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. On behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 